Hello and welcome to Banter. I'm Phoebe Keller, the head of AEI's media department, and I'm here with Robert Doerr, AEI president, and we'll be your Banter hosts. Joining us today on Banter is Michael Strain, who's the Director of Economic Policy Studies and the Arthur Burns Scholar in Political Economy here at AEI. He oversees AEI's work on a range of economic topics, including financial markets, international trade and finance, tax and budget policy, welfare economics, and healthcare policy. Dr. Strain's own research focuses on labor economics and public finance. His latest book, The American Dream is Not Dead, But Populism Could Kill It, was published in February of 2020. Before joining AEI, he was the administrator of the New York Census Research Data Center. He has also worked as an economist at the U.S. Census Bureau and the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. Thanks for joining the podcast. Well, thank you for having me. Phoebe, it's great to have Dr. Strain with us because he is brilliant and funny, so we're hoping we can have a little bit of humor on this podcast. I think we're going to have a blast. <laughs> okay. Well, let's start out with something serious. Mm-hmm. How do you evaluate the President Biden's economic policies since he's been president? Well, I think the the president has had one major policy achievement, which is the American Rescue Plan that was signed into law in February of an 2020. achievement? You call it an achievement? Accomplishment. That was a political achievement. What? It was an economic achievement? One major action that has taken place. (laughs) Okay. How about that? That Sounds better. And I think that that law was significantly too large and poorly structured. I think it was too large in the sense that it stands to set the economy back more than push the economy forward. It creates the risk of overheating. It creates the risk of the Fed choking off the recovery earlier than than it should. And that would leave behind the least skilled, least experienced, most vulnerable workers in the economy. And so I think it creates – I think a, a bill of that size creates real risks to characterize it. The, the law authorized $1.9 trillion of spending for an economy that had you know, maybe a $300 billion hole. It took place in an economic environment that already had substantial fiscal policy stimulus. $900 billion of stimulus was signed into law by President Trump in December of 2020. So it brought the total fiscal impulse to about $2.8 trillion, again, in an economy with about a $300 billion hole to fill. And so it's just – you know, it's an order of magnitude too large. Uh, so, so in the in the sort of comparisons of economic policy malpractice, mm. how does that rank compared to, for instance, President Trump's major tax bill achievement or action, however you want to call it? <laughs> Would this be a more serious act of malpractice than what President Trump did? Well, I think there was quite a bit to like about the 2017 tax law. Not all of it was good, of course, but reducing the corporate income tax rate was a bipartisan goal. President Obama wanted to lower it down from the 35 percent where it was down to 28 percent. And Republicans wanted to lower it down to you know the teens or at least the low 20s. President Trump got down to 21. That's lower than Democrats would have liked, higher than Republicans would have liked, but a significant reduction relative to where it was and a big increase in U.S. competitiveness as a consequence. There were parts of President Trump's tax law that were you know, not nearly as, as well designed, a lot of the individual income side provisions. But I think if I were I- in Congress, I would have voted for voted the Trump proposal and against the Biden proposal. I think that's correct. Oh, that's just such that's music to my ears. <laughs> <laughs> so where are we now? Is the economy not starting 
as fat as healthily or as successfully or the problems we're going to feel in the economy average people out working and and trying to earn a living is the damage being done by the excesses of the Biden act going to happen next year or the year after that and not this year? Well, I think we're experiencing some of it right now. And so on kind of a macroeconomic level, the American Rescue Plan was too large in the sense that it pushed the demand side of the economy too hard. And we are seeing the consequences of that with significant increases in consumer prices. On a kind of microeconomic level, some of the constituent components of the bill were were quite counterproductive. And we are seeing, I think, the consequences of the substantial increase in the generosity of unemployment benefits relative to standard state-provided unemployment benefits. That is, I think, keeping people out of the workforce. So what you have is a situation where the demand side of the economy is surging, the supply side of the economy is struggling to keep up. That's manifesting itself in significant increases in wages which is you know good for the workers who are currently working except for the fact that consumer prices are also rising uh, significantly as well so the purchasing power of those of those wages is is not increasing nearly as much as the nominal wages are and it's fueling the increase in consumer prices by boosting labor costs for businesses so uh, you know it is a good thing that i believe at, at last count 26 governors are ending their participation in the $300 unemployment benefit supplement that President Biden signed into law. That will help alleviate supply-side constraints in the labor market. That should help mitigate unhelpful price increases, at least to some extent. But it would have been better not to have that in the first place. One of the debates that I'm picking up, Ezra Klein wrote a piece about this recently and, and others on the left write about this, that they seem to prefer to reduce poverty or hardship among low-income families by transfer payments and not employment. Where are you on that? Which which is a better way to help people get get a start or increase their livelihood? Is it employment or benefits? Well, I think you know I've noticed the same thing. The political left in the United States has always been friendlier to transfer payments than the political right. The right has been more concerned about the unintended consequences of those payments and more concerned or has believed more strongly in the importance of of, of self-sufficiency. But both the right and the left, at least the center right and the center left, have recognized the importance of work. And that was manifest perhaps most prominently in the 1990s welfare reforms. There seems to be some change on the left. The left seems to be walking away from the importance of work. There seems to be a growing consensus that the jobs that are available to you know the bottom third of workers, something like that, are not worth having, and that it would be it would be better simply to transfer income to those households and not have them work, you know, especially if they don't want to work. You know, the idea that working at a fast food restaurant, flipping burgers, doing manual labor on construction uh, job sites, things of this nature, I think the center left in the 1990s would have said, well, those are good opportunities. Right. They would have pushed back against dead end jobs or bad jobs or crummy jobs, that rhetoric. But they don't anymore. They don't anymore. That's right. But do you – Oh, well, I, yes, I do, you certainly. Do. I think that on an economic level, those jobs are extremely important. And if we don't like the wages that are being offered in the economy in, at the bottom end of the labor market, then the solution is to 
improve the skills and training of workers so that they can command higher wages in the labor market. And that should be the policy focus to the problem of low wages. On, on a- Can I just interrupt you on that one? Because in, in terms of – you're a labor economist. In terms of the best way to improve the skills and training of an adult, let's mm-hmm. say a 24-year-old mm-hmm. with a high school degree but no more, is that more likely to happen while that person is working and getting training in work or more likely have to happen while that person is out of work entirely? I think the evidence is growing that work-based learning really is the best path forward. And the reason for that, I think, is straightforward. You're kind of allowing employers in the labor market to write the curriculum for job training. The employers are saying, these are the skills that, that are valuable to us. These are the skills that we are interested in paying for. And so instead of having you know, community college or the Department of Labor decide what skills are valuable and important, the market is deciding. Employers are deciding. And when you can, when you can create a partnership between employers and local educational institutions like community colleges where workers can – earn income by providing valuable services. Employers are determining what training is taking place, what skills are being taught. And that, of course, is driven by the skills that they find valuable that they're interested in paying for. And a worker can walk out of there with some kind of a credential, a credential that's recognized in the market that other employers would recognize. You know, Then I think you're in a much better place than the United States has been in with traditional job training programs. Those sorts of work-based learning programs really do seem to be showing a lot of potential. So I want to bring Phoebe in here for just a minute. Phoebe, <laughs> um, you're a young person here in the District of Columbia working and living and buying things. Have you seen inflation yet? Um, I don't think so. You have in restaurants or food purchases? <laughs> the biggest or? thing I've seen is that there's no Ubers. <laughs> oh, there's no Ubers. There's the price no is too Ubers low. Ubers or Lyft drivers. <laughs> the price is too low. <laughs> All right. Well, that's, that's interesting. That's the main impact I've seen. <laughs> well, Sarah and I have seen some inflation. We we pick it up in certain – our restaurants, I think, are, are more expensive Much these more days. Expensive. Food has gone up in some categories. And, and my, my local wife, cheeseburger is twice – as expensive as it used to be. I know. It went from $9 to $18. I, that's what I love about you, Michael Strain. A cheeseburger is high on your list of things to think about. Cheeseburgers are delicious. Oh, I agree. I agree. I agree. <laughs> you but and I, I have been to that restaurant together. Yes, we have. And I, I was talking to my daughter had some friends to our house uh, a couple weekends ago, and they were very young women, and they were very concerned about their meals. And there was a, seemed to be an excessive concern it's about very expensive. calorie intake, not because of the price. <laughs> and I reminded them that when I first met Sarah and I, we went on our first or second date, and she said to me, I just want you to know something. And I said, what's that? She said, I'm not afraid of a cheeseburger. And I love that about That's her. Fantastic. <laughs> yes, yes. That's fantastic. So anyway, I have seen inflation. Inflation is there seems to be the right. Is there inflation right now? Is is, is the inflation that's happening now serious and real? And what should the Fed do about it? Well, it's certainly real. So you know, standard measures of price inflation are significantly elevated. They're elevated relative to what we are used to experiencing in the U.S. economy. And they are elevated relative to the Fed's target for inflation, which is 2%. Whether or not they are serious, I think, is really the question. And there are two views on this. One view is that 
the economy is coming out of this you know weird 15 16 month period the demand side of the economy is incredibly strong again around 3 trillion dollars of fiscal stimulus around 2 trillion dollars of excess savings an economy that is reopening that's allowing people to go out and spend money the supply side of the economy is restricted the unemployment benefits certainly but also issues with Childcare provision, schools being closed are also keeping people out of the workforce. Supply chain issues are making it much harder for businesses to produce goods and services. Uh, a shortage of computer chips has made it hard to build new cars. Supply chain issues have kept the door handle off my office door until uh, this weekend, I believe. That's a little. Uh, that's a little slap at AI management. Oh no no you no! no, no. That? <laughs> no no no! That's Michael saying no, 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 somebody no. can't get my door fixed. <laughs> it's, it was actually the bolt. They could. They could. The bolts yeah, were. The shipment for the bolts were delayed. You, you wanted to preface it uh, by saying I don't mean to disparage the AI efforts to help you. Someone else. The economy generally is causing your problem. I'm saying that that in daily life, <laughs> and I assume our listeners are experiencing yes. other things as well. We yeah. bought some uh, furniture for our house, and you know, a table, a lamp, these sorts of things. Incredible delays because of uh, transportation supply yeah. chain issues. Uh, so, get to the bottom line: are, is there inflation that's real, and should the Fed raise interest rates? One view is that this is all temporary. Yeah, and that these sort of these sorts of supply and demand imbalances will work themselves out over time, you know, certainly by the fall, and that we shouldn't really worry. And in fact, that that some inflation is helpful after a, a long period of time with below target price inflation, and then another view is that what is happening right now is more troubling. It has the potential for deeper roots that the supply side of the economy will not come back the way that the optimists think, and that the psychology around wage and price increases is changing. And that is really the key. I think if you look at the at the kind of fundamentals of the economy right now, there is not a whole lot of reason to be concerned that any of the price increases we're seeing are going to stick around. The concern is whether or not Six months, nine months of of this changes the way that people think about price inflation. And if that happens, if households and businesses expect inflation to continue, even if they're wrong, if that's what their expectation is, if workers expect inflation to continue, then you can create a situation where expectations about future inflation become self-fulfilling. So in the old days, there used to be this analogy about the punch bowl. I'm sure you can tell our listeners the punch bowl fed thing, which what I always thought was you anticipate the problem and take the punch bowl away before the party gets out of control. You know, the punch bowl. The I fed, do. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah. The punch bowl is where the fun happens. Is that over <laughs> yeah. with now? Does no one, does no one think that anymore, that the fed should wait till it really happens before they do anything? No, I think people think that. I think, you know. And the, first, just, just tell them. What is what am I talking about when I talk about what what you're talking about is that monetary policy acts with sometimes long and variable lags. And so if the Fed wants to cool the economy this month, that's really tough to do with the tools that the Fed has available to it. And so what the Fed needs to do is think, you know, 6 months ahead, where's the economy likely to go and then to act today 
not to try to affect economic conditions today, but to try to affect economic conditions. Or someone worried about a party getting so, out of control has exactly. to take the punch yeah, bowl away yeah, exactly. before it gets out of so control. If, yeah, so before you get up on the table and start dancing, <laughs> yes. we want to take the punch bowl away so that you're never on the table in the first place. Because once you're on the table, it's hard to get it's you off. It's too late. You know? <laughs> exactly. uh, and, and I think that's the idea. And I think that is still how the Fed is thinking about things. And so there was a, a big meeting last week of the Federal Open Market Committee. And there was a lot of surprise because the kind of consensus of the members of that committee seems to be shifting. That committee used to think that the first increases in interest rates would begin in 2024. Now the committee thinks that the first round of interest rate increases is likely to happen in 2023. And so that's that's the beginning of that conversation. That's the beginning of that of, of, of that conversation. The Fed chairman seemed a little irritated, maybe, that the views of the committee were receiving so much attention. Uh, for listeners who follow financial news, I'm referring to the dot plot. And I think it's reasonable to surmise based on Chairman Powell's press conference, that he does not believe that that the first round of increases should happen in, in 2023. But that seems to be where the committee as a whole is. And my expectation is that is still too dovish, that as we continue to move forward through the summer, that the Fed is going to be pulling the date of their expectations about the first increases in interest rates uh, sooner and sooner. So let's talk about all this debt and deficit and paying for it. Mm -hmm. Do you think, I noticed you wrote something fairly recently advocating for a carbon tax, Mm -hmm. which would lead to additional revenue Mm -hmm. from the federal coffers. Yeah. You're for that. You're for more revenues for the federal government because we we got to pay for what we've committed to? We have to pay for what we've committed to. And... uh, wrote that uh, article in the context of the current debate about infrastructure policy. And there seems to be uh, growing bipartisan support for spending something around a trillion dollars on infrastructure. The consensus around spending is significantly ahead of consensus around how to pay for it. And the administration really wants to increase the corporate tax rate, really wants to increase the capital gains tax rate. I think it would be significantly better to tax pollution than to tax corporate income. I think it would be significantly better to tax carbon emissions than to than to tax risk taking. And I don't think you have any problem with the fact that that might impose a little burden on on middle class Americans. No, 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 no. I don't have a problem with that. You know, Catching what if, this, Phoebe? He wants to tax you. <laughs> Phoebe is... Perfectly able to afford a little extra tax. Is that what you're going to say? Well, if, if Phoebe wants the government to provide so much stuff, <laughs> yeah, yeah. you know, then... I don't know uh, that Phoebe does. <laughs> um, but that is the issue. There seems to be a bipartisan consensus that the middle class should not have to finance the spending programs that the middle class wants. And I think that is, from an economic perspective, not plausible. There there simply is not enough money in the you know, top 1% or top one-tenth of 1% to pay for everything that the American people, through their elected representatives, want to spend. And I think as a moral proposition, imposing 
those sorts of financial burdens on the next generation of Americans in the form of higher debt and treating the top 1% like they're an income-generating mechanism and not as shared citizens in our democracy and trying to cut spending programs for the poor are all, I think, very problematic. We should we should not be looking to the poor first. We should not treat people at the top as an income-generating mechanism. We should not saddle future generations with the bill for the spending we want to enjoy today. We should decide what kind of a government we want, and part of deciding that is, is deciding how much we want to pay in taxes. Do you have in your mind a, a percent of GDP that the federal government should raise in revenues or a percent of GDP that the federal government should spend? I mean – it's below 20 percent now. Do you, do you have a number that you like? Well, revenue is below 20. Spending is, is above yes. 20. Yeah. I, um, I, I don't have a, a, magic, a magic number. You know, I think But that you think they should be together. They should be... I think they should be closer together yes. than they are. Yeah. I think they should be closer together than they are, certainly in, a, in kind of a present value sense. I, I think that projected spending on both Medicare and Social Security is troublingly large. I think that we are at a point where... You can't solve those problems by spending cuts alone. The American people – well, you can, of course, arithmetically, but the American people would not tolerate a 30 percent reduction in in projected Medicare spending or or things of that nature. And so you're going to have to raise some taxes just mechanically. And so then the question is where do you want to look for that tax revenue? And you know, basic – consumption tax is better than income tax focused on the rich. That's right. If you tax something, you get less of it. Do you want less corporate income? Do you want less individual income? Do you want less risk-taking and entrepreneurship? Or do you want less pollution? You brought up the issue of Medicare and Social Security, but I want to talk about Medicare and Medicaid, the mm. big health care expenditures. This is – we're meeting a week or so or shortly after the Supreme Court ruled for the third time mm-hmm. that the Affordable Care Act is constitutional and shall remain in place. Republicans have tried – political avenues to change that, and they failed at that. So I ask you, do you think, at least in the next five years, that we are pretty much stuck with a heavy government intervention in health care through Medicare and Medicaid, and we're not going to get a, a significant structural reform away from the way in which the Democrats want to run health care? Well, I think we're certainly going to be in that place until at least the midterm elections, and I think almost surely until the next presidential term, although you know there's always the one or two percent chance that if Republicans make huge gains in the midterms and are serious about governing, then you know you could see some sort of progress. You know, maybe one or two percent is is too high for yes. that. <laughs> maybe it's more like point zero one or point. Well, they could have political success. My um, point was even if they had political success, it wouldn't be based on an agenda to to drastically reform health care because it seems to not be selling. I think that's right. I think the Republican Party does not have a clear alternative vision for what they want. And, you know, I think the big kind of fundamental debate that the Affordable Care Act settled was whether or not universal health care coverage was the goal. And prior to the ACA, Reasonable people of goodwill argued it wasn't the goal, and the Obama administration said it, it was the goal. And 
I think that the Obama administration convinced the American people of that. The ACA, of course, does not get us to universal coverage, but it does get us closer. And I think right now, arguing that we should be comfortable with 85% coverage or 90% coverage, something of that nature, that may have been a winnable argument 15 years ago, but I think it's not a winnable argument now. But but wait a minute. I mean, I I think that's a fair point, but isn't it a little more than that? They that settled that it's universal health care coverage should be the goal, and it should be guaranteed by government. Yes, I think that there is. I think I think there is uh, room for debate and disagreement on the mechanism, and that's where I think Republicans should be should be focused. What? Let's accept that universal coverage is the goal. And the government plays a role. In and it. the government plays some role in that. How do, we, how do we do that? How do we do that in a way that is better than the Affordable Care Act? How do we do that in a way that is better than Medicaid? Uh, you say less costly. Less costly, more tethered to what consumers actually want, friendlier to innovation, allowing insurance companies to design different kinds of health insurance products rather than having the Department of Health and Human Services tell insurance companies what they're allowed to do. And wait, wait, Mike. You listed a bunch of things that were goals to improve the current system. And we started with less costly and then you reeled off a few others. Mm-hmm. You didn't say quality, which I found was interesting. I was about to say that, but then you interrupted. Okay. <laughs> but, but if you were to – but those are – isn't it one really big problem and four not as big problems? Well, relatively small problems, not even close to the size of the problem of the cost. I think the way you get the cost down is by injecting the kinds of market forces that allow for insurance companies to be innovative, that allow for greater consumer choice, and that let people and that have less scope for heavy-handed regulation that allow people to to buy the insurance products that they that they want to buy. For example. If the real problem facing a healthy male 25-year-old is that he gets hit by a bus or gets some sort of a catastrophic illness, then it should be permissible for an insurance company to design an insurance product that is very bare bones, where if that 25-year-old guy gets a sinus infection uh, or an ear infection, he has to pay the bill. That's not socialized throughout the system. Yeah. But if he gets hit by a bus, then then his insurance will bear the cost of that. You know, that is the kind of And looking back over the past ten years, you think that reforms that brought market discipline to healthcare here and there have successfully been proposed and passed and put into law? Well, I think there have been a lot of good proposals for how to do this. And I think the Republicans had a shot at this in twenty seventeen. And that didn't work. And the Republican Party did not come together around a, a unified vision. And, 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 and their focus was getting rid of the ACA, not replacing the ACA with a system that would be better and cheaper. And, and as a consequence of that focus, they weren't able to get it done. So let's turn to other potential problems with sort of right of center policy formulation. There seems to be, and you've written about this, and I just want to sort of, could you give us the summary of your view on this? And, and I'd be happy to do that. Uh, that there seems to be a, a new fascination with industrial policy oh, yes. on the right. Mm-hmm. 
And I and long uh, long been there on the left. Long been there on the left, and industrial policies, you know, sort of command from the top, telling who the winners and losers are. What you tell us what it is, and and why you're troubled by it. Well, I think that this again is nothing new. It's the kind of thing that mainstream Democrats and and, and progressives have long championed: the idea that the federal government should treat different industries differently make determinations that this industry is of particular importance and should therefore receive uh, special treatment by the tax code or special treatment in the form of subsidies, things of this nature. But these other industries shouldn't. And you're seeing this with manufacturing. You're seeing this with you know this kind of new buzzword of, of resilience in terms of supply chains and, and production processes. On the left, you're seeing it with those things as well. You're also seeing it with you know, green energy and these sorts of industries as part of the president's kind of broader plan for infrastructure. You know, why is it bad? It's bad because it doesn't work. Uh, There's a long history of the federal government attempting to pick winners and losers in markets, and those attempts don't achieve the objectives. The most prominent recent example of protectionism was President Trump's trade wars, Those trade wars, the best evidence suggests, actually reduced employment in the manufacturing sector. Everybody agrees that they raised consumer prices across the board and had diffuse harm throughout the economy. But even judged by their own goal of helping the manufacturing sector, they failed. Well, well, I I, I take your point 100 percent on that. But but just I wanted to ask you this question about China specifically. Mm -hmm. Is there any trade restriction or tariff concerning Chinese products that you would support? Well, sure. I think that these sorts of unilateral measures don't work. But if the United States were to assemble a coalition of other countries and engage in a coordinated action against China using economic diplomacy to attempt to change China's behavior in terms of the forced transfer of technology, in terms of intellectual property theft, in terms of dumping, in terms of other bad practices, that that very likely could be successful. So you you termed it economic diplomacy. Mm -hmm. That's kind of a nice term, but but that would mean a a tariff or quota. It's a beautiful term. That could be a tariff or a quota. could be a restriction on trade. It definitely could be a restriction on yeah. trade. Absolutely. And but but did you just say that you would only support that if it was in concert with other countries? You could we could not do it on our own. I think it it would only work if we did it with other countries. And President Trump did the opposite of this. Of course, he made Europe and Canada enemies in his trade war. President Biden just got back from some time in Europe, and one of the big things that happened was a cessation of hostilities between the United States and Europe over commercial aircraft and manufacturing. Yes, Boeing. Yeah. Boeing and Airbus. And the idea there is to say, OK, let's, let's call a ceasefire on the Boeing and Airbus war so that the United States and Europe can present a unified front against China, which is considerably increasing its capabilities to, to produce aircraft. That is good. That's the kind of thing that should be happening. China may be attempting to join TPP, which would be a catastrophe. 
the United States should not only try and block China from joining TPP, the United States should also join TPP. TPP is, of course, the trade pact that President Obama worked out in his final term and that the United States did not join under President Trump. That would be another example of of using economic diplomacy to apply pressure to China through a multilateral effort. These are these are not only things that stand to work against China. These are things the United States should be doing in an affirmative. Someone said at a, at a cocktail party I was at the other day that, that they wished that they could more easily see when they buy a product, whether it was manufactured in China, so they that have the they, little stickers, so they could not buy it. Mm. But do you do you encourage that kind of thinking? Well, I think I think if people don't want to buy products that are produced in China, then then they shouldn't, and that's a perfectly reasonable choice. It may drive up their costs and their cost of living, but they should do it. It may drive up the yeah, exactly. Yeah, it may drive up those individuals those individuals' costs, but you know, people make all sorts of choices about things that they will and won't buy. I think uh, there are many things I don't buy based on personal preferences, <laughs> and, and you know, that's something that people Michael is be the father to. of two young toddlers and the husband of a lovely wife and. And I'm sure you buy a lot of products these days. I bet you're in a, you're quite a consumer of of various gadgets and things for your kids. Am I right about that? Our uh, house often looks like an Amazon warehouse <laughs> because there are so many Amazon boxes every day. They're stacked up. Sometimes they're taller than me, and I feel like I have a side job of breaking down boxes and putting them uh, in the recycling. I spend a lot of time doing that. And uh, I don't get paid for it, but, you know, maybe one day. Michael, you know, you have a very important role here in Washington and here in the country as the director of economic policy at the American Enterprise Institute. Who is your role model? Robert Dork. No, no. (laughs) (laughs) Correct. (laughs) No. In the economic policy world, in the history of America, who is the the economic policy uh, person scholar, leader, who you have really admired and, and tailor your career after, or would? Well, I don't know if there's, any, if there's any one person. I mean, I think that the country has been very fortunate to have a number of individuals over the decades who have had the background and, and the training and the knowledge to form judgments about what is in the best interests of the country and who have been able to push the country in, in the right direction. In various ways. Sometimes that has involved serving in government, and there have been many great economic policymakers that have really advanced the welfare of the United States over the years. Sometimes that has taken place in the form of— So George Schultz or Marty Feldstein or Paul Volcker. Any of them? You like all them? All great. Um, I mean, Paul Volcker was a tremendously important and influential Fed chairman who did what he thought was right despite enormous— Consequences. I mean, the unemployment rate, uh, as a consequence of the Volcker disinflation, rose above ten percent. Interest rates were around double that, and you know that inflicted a lot of short-term harm on the economy. But Chairman Volcker thought that was the right thing to do, and and I think he, I think the four decades that followed really. Have you been disappointed in Secretary Yellen's performance so far? I have been uh, disappointed with some aspects of, of of Secretary Yellen's performance. Of course, you don't know you know what's happening behind the scenes and in private meetings and and things of that. The Treasury that Secretary, nature. who's a former Fed chair, is being overruled by staffers at the White House. I I hope that that's not what's that's happening. What it looks like. Uh, I hope that's that's not what what's happening. I think that the administration has made some clear mistakes. 
And, you know, again, they've had one accomplishment so far, which is the, the, the February stimulus. A political stim- accomplishment is not a policy accomplishment. They've, they've done one thing so far, <laughs> which is the word accomplishment. Especially, especially be- when that accomplishment, I think, was a pretty uh, not bipartisan piece of legislation. See, I think of the word accomplishment as uh, kind of a values neutral word. You could have a I bad don't. accomplishment. Look you could that have up? a good accomplishment. We get accomplishment from the Biden perspective. You could have, you could have well, a, that that you could say it that way. You could, have a, you could <laughs> say it that way. Like, like you no, know, accomplishment building. is definitely not values neutral. I think we should look this up at some point. John's gonna. Okay. John's looking at Google now. <laughs> I think John. I think John's determined that I'm correct about something this. that has been achieved successfully. Mm-hmm. Okay. A successful achievement of a task. Successful. Yeah. It brought happened. to brought to completion. Yeah. But uh, in any event, <laughs> you know that was clearly too big. Yeah. And I think if you had. Uh, asked all the people who supported it six months before, three months before it passed. You know what what they thought the right size was for another round of stimulus. You wouldn't have gotten many people who would have said it was that big. The constituent elements of it, I think, were misguided and harmful in some instances. And the role for economists in government is to really push back on those sorts of proposals that may seem like smart politics but are clearly bad policy. So you mentioned earlier this question of the labor shortage, which in some places is it feels like, it certainly looks sure. like. And you the I think the principal cause that you cited was the excessive benefits that are allowing people to stay off the, on the sidelines. But out of the side of my corner of my eye, I saw recently a headline about Retirements. Mm-hmm. And people, people who dropped out of the labor force and were sixty or fifty-eight mm-hmm. or sixty-two, mm-hmm. and they would have due due to COVID or mm-hmm. due to the and and now they're not coming back. The other cause that some people have raised, but has been I think pretty successfully rejected, is childcare uh, mm-hmm. needs. What about those two other causes for the labor shortage? Are you concerned that the aging population is retiring earlier? And it may be harder to get them back into the labor force. And what about uh, the, the burdens of childcare keeping people on the sidelines? Yeah, so I don't know which of these is the most important factor. And the economy is changing so rapidly that that the most important factor you know, is is likely uh, different month to month. I think that as we move through the summer, the unemployment benefits are going to be the dominant factor if they aren't already. Whether or not they were the dominant factor in April, I think, is uh, a subject of, of reasonable debate. I certainly think that that the evidence uh, right now suggests that we're going to have some early retirements and that that's going to make it harder for the economy to recover all the jobs that were lost. I think child care has been a real issue and was a real issue this spring, for sure. I think the unemployment benefits were a big issue this spring. I also Jason Furman and Melissa Carney's little study show that child care wasn't a problem? That's a conclusion from their analysis. These are economists uh, who I know you hold in high regard. I think I think Jason and Melissa are terrific. And I think that they have produced a piece of evidence in favor of the view that child care is less of an issue than uh, maybe, maybe I a much smaller issue than many think. Overstated uh, by the Democrats. Their issue, their analysis has certainly um, influenced uh, my views on this. It has not convinced me definitively that child care issues aren't significant. And of course, you know, there are limits on how quickly 
employers can hire and fill vacancies and do things of that nature as well. And, you know, we'll have to figure out where kind of where things where well, you things used settle. to always say if once you drop out of the labor force and you're not working, the longer the time goes on, mm-hmm. the harder it is to get them back. Oh, yeah. And if you're 61, mm-hmm. it may be over. Sure. It may never come back. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you're, you know, look, we have the, the U.S. government has transferred a lot of income to people. The stock market is doing great. And if you're 61, 62 years old, you've been working from home for 15 months and your retirement portfolio is looking good and your boss is saying, hey, we want you back. And, uh, you know, you may be thinking, well, you know, I was going re- to retire in two or three years anyway, and I have enough money saved up, and and you know, I don't want to, I don't want to do that. So then, do you have a sort of low and em- low unemployment, low growth country? If the labor for if the there just isn't enough workers. Yeah, that's that's right. I mean, there are two two ways that an economy grows. One is by adding workers. And the second way is for the workers you have to produce more more stuff, to produce more goods, to produce more services, labor force growth and productivity growth. And if we are in a situation where there is significant downward pressure on labor force growth, then we're left with productivity. And I think we're going to have a very strong productivity growth over, over the next few years, but we would have even stronger economic growth if we had a more faster growing labor force. Well, this has been a great conversation. I want to ask you, sometimes, you know, when I have conversations with scholars of the great renown and wisdom of people like Dr. Strain, I worry that that it's been too elementary, too basic. I think it's been great. No, no. (laughs) But is there some really serious, you know, esoteric point that I haven't asked you about that you'd want to make about the state of our economy? No, I don't think so. I think the principal issue that's that's on my mind is this imbalance between the demand and supply sides of the economy and the effect that that imbalance has on the way that, that, that households and businesses and investors think about the economy and think about the future of the economy. And we saw last week again that the Fed has updated its views. We need to keep an eye on whether or not households, businesses, and investors update update their views, and we need to see whether or not this kind of herky-jerky start and stop demand and supply issues resolve themselves and we get back to normal in the fall or whether they portend deeper changes. So since you keep you mentioned investors a couple times there, and, and our colleague Des Lockman had another piece this week saying that the imbalances are so severe, we're going to have a big big crash yeah. at some point in the future. Am I summarizing his view? I think that's his view. Are you taking – you're an investor. Are you very safe? Are you in bonds and cash only now or, or where are you on that? Well, I am um, more of a life cycle <laughs> yeah. investor. Yeah. You know, and so I'll, I'll move into bonds later when I'm closer to retirement. You're so young. You know, was, did I say he's the brightest young economist in America? <laughs> I uh, don't expect to ever be able to retire, and so maybe I'll never move into bonds. So that's interesting. Okay. Thank you. Phoebe? Yeah. I mean, I think we have to wrap up in a minute, but I did want to ask kind of one big picture lessons learned from the past year and a half question. So kind of knowing what we know now, if it was March 2020 again, how would you weigh the cost of lockdowns now? And kind of now that we've used this mixture of direct payments, PPP, increased unemployment, what do you think 
you would prescribe if we could go back in time? So in March of 2020, I didn't expect that there would be a recession because I didn't expect that there would be lockdowns. I thought that people would slow down their spending considerably. I thought that the economy would slow quite a bit. But I I thought the unemployment rate would rise a little bit, but I did not expect, you know, a 20 I think we did it with a separate community, Michael and I, mm-hmm. in March of 20. And Michael said this is going to be over very quick. Yeah. That's um, a lot of AI. You know, and, I, and, 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 you know, what would that have looked like? I mean, it would have looked like, you know, people not traveling, people socializing less, people going to restaurants less, but, you know, people riding the, the subway and, and, and the metro less. But people still going to work, kids still going to school. You know, again, a slow, a considerable slowdown, stalling out of the economy, but nothing like the economic catastrophe we experienced in March and April. And of course, you know, what happened in March, some governors concerned about the coronavirus in their states started imposing really severe restrictions on business activity. And the dominoes started to fall. And as the dominoes were falling, Congress said, oh, oh, geez, we need to do something here to support the economy. And that's where the CARES Act came from, the Paycheck Protection Program, unemployment benefit enhancement, some of the things that you that you asked about. That, you know, I think caught people, uh, some people by surprise. The jury, I think, is still out on the basic question, you know, how much of the slowdown in economic activity was the result of voluntary measures taken by individuals and taken by businesses out of concern about catching the virus and how much of the slowdown in activity was driven by the lockdown measures themselves. I don't have a firm view on that at this point because there really is a significant conflict in the research literature on that question. My suspicion is that when the dust settles, it will show that the lockdown measures themselves had a really significant role in in the slowdown in economic activity, that voluntary restrictions definitely played a role, but that the lion's share of what we saw was driven by the lockdowns. And so then the question from a public health perspective is, you know, was that was that necessary? The second big piece of information I'm I'm waiting to see is how effective were masks. And I think that if the evidence shows that masks really were as effective as they seem to be in in say the American Southwest during the during the summer of 2020, then you know the conclusion likely is going to be that the lockdown measures were an overreaction and that we could have achieved public health goals through through social distancing measures and masking that were much less severe than having state governments force businesses to shut down and ask people to to remain in their homes. And so that's something that you know it's an extremely important question that I think we're going to get better evidence on kind of as as time goes by. Stepping back from that, I do think we can say at this point that that many of the of of the individual decisions that governments made were were bad decisions. I can't imagine a, a cost benefit analysis that would conclude that keeping children out of school for a year was the right the right mm-hmm. decision. That I think is going to be judged by history as a significant, significant error, an error that is going to echo in the lives of many of those kids, particularly low-income kids, for decades to come. We kept tattoo parlors open but kept children out of classrooms, which I think is a a failure. 
Very good question to end on and a good answer as well. Thank you. Thanks for joining. Well, thank you for having me. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the discussion today. Please remember to subscribe and rate the podcast. Feel free to send us any feedback or suggestions at banter at AEI.org.